Take your Bible and go with me to the book of Jonah. I don't know the last time you've read Jonah, but go to Jonah for just, for just a moment. As we turn to Jonah, um, it's a kind of a small little book, isn't it? You've got to kind of find it. It's kind of tucked away. If you can find Obadiah, that's another small one, then you find Jonah. Actually, it's funny because in my Bible, it's just two pages. That's a pretty small, it's a minor prophet. Jonah is a minor prophet, not because he, like he wasn't worth anything, he's just minor, um, but he just didn't say as much as the major prophets. So when we read this, many of you know the story of Jonah, and I think you know it pretty well. What I want to do is I want to read to you Jonah, chapter, end of chapter 2, and chapter 3, okay? It sounds like it's really long, but it's not at all. So here we go, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger that, he, that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Do you remember the story of Jonah? I don't know when the last time you read the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is not really about a big fish. It's actually about a big God. Um, But interesting, people think about it as a big fish. But as I'm looking at this for just a moment, what I want to do is I want to challenge you about this whole idea, verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's mad, and he's mad at God. Have you ever been mad at God? Interesting, um, it was... A number of years ago, we were traveling. I actually had this tooth issue. It was a wisdom tooth that was kind of impacted, and I and, uh, had to go to a dentist to get it removed. I'm sitting in the, in the, in the waiting room. They call me in. I, I sit down and start talking to the dental assistant. As I begin to talk to her, it's interesting, the conversation, because I, I kind of had a normal conversation, and I kind of begin to swing it to spiritual realms, you know, I was trying to kind of go into the gospel with her. And as I start to talk to her for just a moment, it's interesting because um, I said, ma'am, do you go to church anywhere? 
Yeah, that's kind of a good question. It's actually a diagnostic question. It also is easy to kind of pop into the gospel, you know, with something like this. But I said, you got a church anywhere around here? And then she looked at me, and all of a sudden her face changed. And she said, church, I wouldn't darken the door of a church because I'm mad at God. Now, it's interesting, um, as she went on to continue why she's mad at God, I said, really, what's, what's going on? And she says, I'm mad at God because he took my mom. My mom, she loved God, and she's this born-again you know, Christian, and, and I just, you know, in the, in the process of this, it's like, you know, and then I can't remember what it was, it was cancer or something like that, but she passed away, and she says, I'm just mad at God. I can't believe he would do that. And trying to easily try to help her, said, you know, taking some ease there. But I said, "Well, you, if she, if you if she is born again, like you said, you know where she is, don't you? I mean, she would be in heaven. She would be with the Lord. <laughs> and do you know that she wouldn't want to come back here? Okay, just so you know, when you if you die in Christ, you know you you will never want to return here. I mean, what, a, what a blessing it is to be there because of eternal bliss, no more pain, no more sorrow. She's with Jesus, you know? And I said, do you know why that people die? And I began to bring her back. I said, you know, in the, in the book of Genesis, it kind of tells us about, here's, here's Adam and Eve, and they've got this perfect relationship with God. There's been no issues, no struggles and stuff like that. So you, and, and they've got this fellowship. They can talk with God. And, I mean, it's literally paradise on earth. There's no sin struggles. There's no sin curse. And then Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. They choose to go their own way. And the moment they rebel against God, the sin curse begins to fall upon the whole world. And that sense, I said, because of that, Scripture even talks about, it says this, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and then death by sin, therefore death passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. In other words, where, what's the problem? Why do people die? They die because of sin, because of the sin curse. That's why you're going to die. You were born sinners. And we will die. That's what's going to happen to every person because of the sin curse. But interesting, who came to fix that? I mean, God did. God steps in. And then he tells them about Messiah in the future. In one sense, I'd say, don't get mad at God. I mean, I mean, if you're going to get mad at someone, maybe you want to get mad at Adam and Eve. But I don't know if I'd get mad at Adam and Eve but because they sin, because how often do you sin? And I sin every day. So, so therefore, it's not really smart to get mad at Adam and Eve. Maybe you should be mad at the devil, because here's the whole point, is God, Jesus, came to save. So why would you get mad at God? But isn't it interesting, I think if we're all honest, there are times in our life where we do get mad at God, it's just like things are not going the way I thought. If I were in control, and praise God, you're not. You know what I mean? But isn't that interesting? So as we look at this, really what I want to do is challenge you, don't get mad at God, but I want to think through this for just a moment as we would look at this. So let's pray and ask God's help, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for my friends here. I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and our lives today, that we would walk out of here of the church uh, different than when we came in. I pray for those who need Christ, who have never humbled themselves in genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Lord, would you do a work in their heart and life? And I pray for many in this room who are in Christ, who have 
humbled themselves, who have repented and trusted in you alone. I pray, would you stir their hearts as believers that we would be about your business, we'd be following you, we would be living worthy of the gospel and sharing that good news. So God, right now, would you prepare our hearts this week? I pray that this week would be a powerful week, that we would give it to you, Lord. There would be be nothing of ourselves that we're trying to exalt. We'd be exalting your name, and you would be glorified in all of this. So stir our hearts, change us, mold us into your image. And Lord, empower me now. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. So we look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You could say Jonah is ticked. Now, what's interesting about Jonah, if you study Jonah out a little bit, you will find that especially in chapter 4, there's a lot of emotions going on. I mean, a lot. I mean, you've got Jonah who seems to be all happy, so sad, he's mad. He's like, you're kind of going, whoa. I mean, this is a, this is a very interesting prophet, you know? And, uh, and if you read Jonah 1 and 2 and moving up into 3, the truth is you realize that Jonah was told right from the beginning to go to Nineveh and preach this great city, the message that I tell you to preach. And, and instead of going to Nineveh, what'd he do? He goes the opposite direction. I mean, he's supposed to be going north, you know, east, and he goes southwest. He gets on a boat. He, you know, he pays the fare. He even tells them, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm running from God, you know, kind of that kind of idea. And he, he gets on the boat and, um, and then the raging storm, God sends a storm, a raging storm where the mariners, they think they're going to die. It's so, such a, they start throwing things overboard. That's their way, that's their livelihood that they're throwing overboard, which means they would rather live than die, okay? That's why they're doing this to the point where they find him sleeping in a boat and they wake him up, oh, sleeper, what are you doing, you know? And, um, and then come to find out, he tells them what's going on. You throw me overboard and your woes will stop, you know? And sure enough, at some point later, they throw him overboard. God sends a great fish. The fish swallows him, spits him out after three days. Chapter two is a prayer where you have him within the belly of the fish. He's crying out to God until eventually at the very end of that prayer, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord and I'll pay my vows. And God commands the fish to spit him up on the dry land. Talk about a spit up. That's called projectile vomiting, you know, he's on dry land. Now go the second time, and guess what? It's like this. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I do not want that to happen to me ever again. Again, I kind of wonder, did he ever go near a body of water ever after that? You know, he maybe struggled taking showers, you know, or taking a bath, you know. <laughs> but this is pretty crazy, and he goes and he does this, and it seems to be somewhat reluctant as he's crying out this message that's like six words long in the Hebrew. I mean, it's very, very short. And then, sure enough, God does a miracle. God, God starts work, He works on these people's lives. These people, with such little revelation, they turn to the one true God. It's, it's such a radical change. It's such a radical shift. At this point, it's, I mean, even the king, this is a conquering king, the number one king in the world at the time. I mean, he's conquered all these nations, and he, and he t- throws off his kingly robe and puts on sackcloth. I mean, it's like burlap, and it's, I mean, it's this nasty stuff, and he, and he puts ashes, he starts throwing that on his, he starts telling all the people, you need to do this too, and the people, from the people to the king, back to the people, you know, humble yourself, even the animals, don't let them eat, you know, cry out to God, who knows if he'll be merciful or not, and God saw what they did. God and his mercy, his grace. 
He didn't send judgment. And then you have Jonah, who you would think as a preacher of, of you could say, the gospel. As a preacher, what you would want, long for, you long to see revival, you long to see God work, don't you? I mean, that would, be, that would be like amazing that God could even use you in the process. And then it happens. And he's ticked. He is mad. So we look at the first, prof, first side of the prophet, okay? I don't want you to do this. I'm going to kind of take you through some of the thought, thoughts of the prophet for a minute here. But, <clears throat> but the emotions, let's look at number one, the angry prophet. I think you can see this in his emotions. He is mad. He is ticked. Um, you could say in a literal translation of this, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. That's what he's thinking. This is wrong. This is evil. I can't believe this has happened. And in verse one of chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Why? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why was Jonah mad? There's probably multiple reasons behind this. Although the truth is that Scripture is going to point us to one main reason. But maybe he's mad at God for not judging those wicked people. In other words, these people are known for their violence. They're awful. I don't know if you knew this, but when they would come and conquer, they would come in, they would, they would, they would slice and chop off heads. They would impale people. They would sometimes put their bodies in being impaled in the city streets. They would light them on fire like they're lighting up the city streets with the bodies of these people. They would come in with large, massive knives, and they would come and they would hack. They would kill pregnant women. They'd rip them open and kill the baby and, and kill the woman. They would fillet people after they'd kill them. They would cut their, their skin. They would they'd fillet, and they'd put their skins up over the walls of their city to say, you mess with us, this is what we'll do to you. They were known for their violence, which is interesting because in, in the end of chapter 3, it says that they, they turned from their evil way, from the violence that was in their hands. I mean, that was what they were known for as a violent group of vile people. They were immoral. I mean, everything about this was they deserve clearly the judgment of God. But yet, look at, the, at this, it's like he's mad at God because it seems like, you know, God, why aren't you judging these wicked, wicked people? I mean, even for your name's sake, to show that you're holy and righteous, judge them. Maybe that's part of it. Actually, the truth is, maybe he's mad at God, not just for not judging these people, but maybe he's mad at God for Israel's sake. I mean, these are the enemies of Israel. I mean, God, you know, judge our enemies, they're, they're the ones going after us to, to, to ruin our lives. God, why would you bless our enemies? <clears throat> and yet you think about this. Maybe he's, maybe he's mad at God for, for making him look bad. I mean, if you think about him as a prophet, as a preacher, you know, it's a little bit like, hey, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. And 40 days comes and goes. I mean, in the Old Testament, when you think about a prophet, you know, and you think about a prophet who maybe prophesies something, I wouldn't call this prophecy in a sense, but it, it's kind of like in 40 days, it's going to be overthrown, you know, it kind of seems almost like prophetic that way, sure. And what happens if you made a prophecy and it didn't come to pass in the Old Testament, what would you do to the prophet? You do what? You kill him. He, he's going to die. And then his own reputation I mean, God, I told him this would happen. It's not happening. 
Could you imagine his reputation in Israel? That's the prophet who actually turned our enemies to God. Now, you would think they would be going, amen. (laughs) But they're not. These are enemies. Why would you go and bless the enemies? This makes no sense in their mind, in a sense. So you could say maybe he's, he's his own reputation. It's just, I mean, now he's known as the one to actually turn the end. I mean, everything about this just kind of seems bad. But why is he really mad? And I think what you see is he's really mad at God because God did not do what he wanted God to do. That's why he's mad. He wanted God to judge them, and God didn't do that, and that makes him so mad. He wanted something other than what God wanted. And isn't that interesting? Because how often can we be the same way? Here we are, you know, I don't know, maybe your retirement has gone exactly the way you thought. You know, economy has been so great to you in your retirement funds. <laughs> um, you know, you, you love the president administration. It's just doing so well, you know, in everything. Um, you start thinking about how COVID and cancer hit. Um, people die. So many things not going our way. He's mad. Can I just tell you this? The moment you get really mad at God, now can I... And I would say this is, is, is you, you can even tell God you're mad at him. You know, that doesn't, it's not, he's a big God. He's okay. You know what I mean? It doesn't like, you know, affect him really. Oh, no. What am I going to do? She's mad at me. You know what I mean? In one sense, too. Um, it's not going to hurt God uh, that way. And actually, I love that Jonah actually does speak to God in the midst of this. He doesn't like just hold it in and go his own way in a, in a corner somewhere. He's telling God these things, which is actually good. But it's interesting because the moment you get really mad at God, clearly you don't know the mind and heart of God because your ways and God's ways are different. And, and can I just remind you, God's ways are always best. You might not always know what, what he's doing, but the whole point is they're always, he's always best. He never gets it wrong in his judgment. Did you know that? Never. Which is so interesting. Even, even the most evil things within this world that happen, God can turn it to good and actually can bring even judgment upon them. It's interesting how God is so at work. I mean, I, I think of me, I'm like a, you know, I'm a normal guy, a one-track mind kind of person kind of feel. You know, I can do one thing at one time, good. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not a multitasker. And some of you women can do a bunch of things. But then you go, well, how would you, how would you even deal with the whole world at the same time? That's radical. And that's God. But here's the prophet. Number one, he's angry. He is ticked. Number two, he goes from angry to being pouting. You, and you, I think of little kids. As, you know, I think of anger, you know, you know, like this. They're really mad. To then I think of pouting because that's what he starts doing. Look at verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. What? Like, it's almost like, did you read what I just read? 
because he's, he's mad and he's pouting. I mean, then you can imagine this, you know, like you sometimes see anger, you know, with a little kid, and occasionally you'll see it with adults too, you know. And then he starts to go off his own direction, and he's pouting, you know. It's like, and you, and you see little kids do that sometimes where their lip sticks out, you know, you know, and then it's like they fold their arms maybe, and they're, they're kind of giving you that silent treatment, you know, and kind of hiding in that sense and in a corner. And what are they doing? The whole, you know, and I get it. <clears throat> Some of your grandparents or even great-grandparents, and you think that's cute. You know, you're like, oh, look at them stomping away. The little lip sticks out. You know, they walk off like that. You think it's cute, but the parents do not think it's cute. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I get it, because grandparents, you know what they do? They're like, this is great. You know, you can spoil them and send them home. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But, oh, this is bad. Okay, so, uh, and I think about how dumb sometimes little kids can be. I remember um, in our own family, our kids one time were, I don't know if they were, Teasing? I don't know if they were teasing. I think they were just, it was, they were with a cousin, and the cousin got upset, and he's really little, and he said back to them, Well, if I'm not going to get my way, then I'm going to go give myself a time out. And he stomped off and stuck his lip out and stomped off and went his way. And, our, and you can imagine our boys being older, too. They're like, well, Why don't you go ahead and do that? <laughs> this is great, actually. It gives us more time, you know. Um, so you think about how silly it is, but what, what are they doing when they're pouting? They're, they're trying to manipulate the parent to get their own way. I'm going to put you in my prison until, until you give me what I want, and I'm going to keep pouting, and I won't talk to you. I'll give you the silent treatment, you know, which is interesting because sometimes adults do the same thing. I'm not going to talk to them. Till they, till they, till they change. And so here he is. He's a pouting prophet. He's mad at God. He's angry. He's kind of gone away. But to me, what's so astounding is that verse two, because he says, "This is what I said. This is why I fled to Tarshish. Because this is why. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." If you heard that phrase in a psalm, those descriptions of God in a psalm, you would say, wow, that psalmist knows God. And actually, do you know that you can read it in a psalm? Actually, the first time you begin to read phrases like this is found in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And I'll read them to you. You don't have to turn there. But it says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting even visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. But again, he's blessing for thousands of generations. Forgiving, merciful, that's excess. That's when the law is actually given. That's the first time you kind of see this phraseology kind of given. Actually, then Psalm 86, verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. That's God. He's merciful. He's good. He's ready to forgive. Verse 15 of that same Psalm 86, it says this, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, that means patient, and abundant in mercy and truth. You go to the book of Joel, even further on. Joel says in, verse, in chapter 2, in verses 
12 to 14. Now, therefore, I say to the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, they would do external things, but they weren't really what's reflecting on the inside. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. (laughs) That's amazing. Who is God? God is gracious, isn't he? According to scripture right here, according to Jonah, he knows this. God is gracious. What does this mean? This means in one sense, it communicates an attitude of the Lord towards those who are undeserving, therefore expressing benevolence. You could say in the ultimate sense, I mean, he's so benevolent. And yet when you think about grace, when it comes to a theological kind of a thought, it's God, not, it's not just that he doesn't give us what we deserve. That would be mercy. But God showers us with blessings when we deserve punishment. God is so gracious and he's merciful. I mean, when you think about this for a minute, what do we all deserve? We've all broken his laws. We've all sinned against him. We deserve judgment. But you're not experiencing that right now. You're not in hell. You might say, well, Jeremy, my life feels like hell. Well, then I'd say, well, then let me just encourage you to study out biblical hell because you're not there. I promise, okay? And you begin to consider God withholding judgment and being so merciful. Actually, that translation gives us that, that, that idea of, of loving mercy from God. Even the parent or a mother who loves her child and the mercy she gives towards a compassion towards a little infant. I mean, God is this way. He's merciful. Actually, he's slow to anger. He's patient. I mean, if you were the one dealing with this prophet... What would you have done to this prophet? I mean, at that point, it's like, you know, Jonah, I'm telling you to do one thing, and you totally do the opposite. I'm kind of done with you. I'll use a different prophet, okay? Why don't you just go ahead and come on home? I mean, you, you look at the patience of God. He's so patient, and he is so kind, isn't he? I mean, he's full of this loving compassion. Actually, that's that, that Hebrew word which Pastor might have brought out to you at some point. The, it's the one that's very famous. is the hesed. Hesed, this loyal style of love from God. And yet he's so kind in this, expressing this kindness, this unfailing love. That's who God is. And God is good because he turns from his judgment. He relents from this, from sending calamity. We deserve the judgment, but he doesn't do it. God is being merciful. Now, again, if he does do it, then we deserve it. (laughs) But that's exactly what's going on. This is who God is. But then Jonah says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What? And then what does God say? Look at the next verse, verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, you would think, you'd be like, Jonah, I have told you so many times. But you see the kindness and the mercy, the patience of God. Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? It's like a dagger to his soul. At that point, 
what happens. I mean, then we see verse 5. So Jonah, he went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. So he kind of a little shanty. He makes him get some sticks together and kind of puts this little kind of outfit kind of thing together, makes this little booth, this little hut. He didn't have time to dig and put footers in with, you know, some concrete or something like that. He just, he just, it went pretty fast. And he sat under in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. So this is actually really good for him because he's thinking, I've got a place of shade. I'm, I'm outside of the city. God's going to send judgment and fire from God. You know, he's going to destroy them. And which is interesting because now the Lord God appointed a plant that he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. What's well, even more exciting? Notice verse, verse six. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <laughs> this is like that. Here's the third one, you know. So Jonah's gone from being angry to pouting, you know, to happy. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, what is Jonah? Is he like bipolar? Maybe tripolar or quadpolar. I mean, he's got some serious problems. But he's all happy now. Everything seems to be going his way. Yay, yay. That's where he's living. So he's happy. Until this happens, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, you know. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. Now he's feeling this, you know, and he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Kind of catching this. As I look at that, it's like funny because he goes from being angry to pouting to happy to now discouraged. What happened to him? Well, the worm kills the plant. So there's his shade. His shade is not there. Big, vehement east wind. You know, what happens to your little hut, your little shanty? That you didn't dig footers and, and, and really build it right, you know? You didn't go to Menards and, and get the right equipment. It's gone. And then here you are, underneath the heat of the sun, feeling it in a desert climate. <clears throat> he is discouraged. But you know what? God does how to humble us, doesn't he? He knows, he knows what we need when we need it. And I don't know if you've realized all of these things. If you read Jonah, you can't get away from as Jonah keeps making the decisions to go against God and go his own way consistently, how God is the one who sends the storm. God is the one who sends the fish. God is the one who tells the fish to spit him out. God is the one who actually... Who, who creates the plant that quickly. God is the one to send the worm. Now, again, you might think, okay, God's not in the details. We're talking about a worm here. Like the, like the dumb things you hear from people. You know, God is like a clock winder. You know, he started the, you know, his creation and kind of walked away. You know, I'm like, you clearly don't read the Bible, Okay. And then again, for people to say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament is like a, like a, you know, like a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is, you know, so nice and kind and merciful. And I'm like, you still don't read your Bible, do you? Because, I mean, just read Jonah. Look what he did. And then you think of Ananias and Sapphira. Look what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's New Testament. 
So you have this discouraged prophet, but he's humbled. And how does God humble him? Watch what God does. In verse 10, as you see this, he wants to die. Uh, Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry, verse 9, for for the plant? This tells you this. God knows what he's really mad at. He's mad right now because, because of the shade. He wanted a shade. God, you took my plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you had pity or you pity the plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, question mark, and the book's done. Honestly, you would think if if you and I were in charge of this book, we would have finished the book at the end of chapter 3 where God didn't perform all this evil, in a sense, or this, this, this judgment upon these people. And that would be great revival happened, and amen. Well, see what God can do. But see, God is so much more in the details. He's, he's going after even the very specific part of the prophet. He's at work in so many areas, isn't he? He's at work in the mariners. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Even though Jonah is going that direction, he's at work there. He's at work then in Nineveh. And again, Jonah, he's at work on Jonah. He, there's a whole bigger purpose than what we sometimes see. We see a little glimpse. We see the tree, but we don't see. We can't back off enough to see the big picture, and God knows it all and is in all the details. So as you look at this, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city where there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Okay, wait a second. There are two views here, really two main views. What does he mean by this? They don't know their right hand from their left. Well, it could be. The idea is, hey, it's like there's just no real moral compass with these people. I mean, come on, you know? Give them some pity, 120,000 people. Or if you look at it literally, who in our culture and our world would not know their right hand from their left? And who would that be? Well, I can tell you, yeah, as he says, children, I think about junior camp, you know? I actually lo- I love preaching to juniors. It's r- super fun. And juniors, you know, third through sixth grade, well, you would think they would know their right hand from their left, some of them, but some of them don't. I think of the younger kids, you know, it's, it's like, it's, because I'll say sometimes, okay, kids, raise your right hand, and you'll see kids go. And then they go. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I know, I'm watching the crowd do this. I'm like, no, no, that's not the right. No, yeah, you know, I can see this, you know. So I'll say, hey, boys and girls, let me help you out. Here we go, ready? Take your hands and go like this. And they do that, and I say, okay, whichever one makes an L, that's your left hand, and they go, okay, here. But now if you're dyslexic, you're in trouble. I can't help you, you know what I mean? But, um, but sure enough, here we go, left hand. Well, again, who doesn't know the right hand from their left? So it's, it's like, if that's the case, that means 120,000 children who don't know the right hand from their left, 
And not just that, consider this, if that's 120,000 children, how big is the city now? Now the city might be half a million people, easy. This is pretty radical. He's saying, don't you, don't you get it, Jonah? All you care about is your little, well, your, your, your ease and comfort, your shade. And I care about something far greater. I care about the souls of people. And there's 120,000 of these, maybe half a million, and yet they, they don't understand the right hand from their left. I mean, the whole point is, here's all these people. God's concerned about people while Jonah's concerned about the plant. Does this sound familiar? You have people in your own culture, in your own world, who are dying and going to hell. And we're so caught up with our plants. It's not wrong to do renovation work at your house, have a nice lawn. but we can get off focus real fast. And before we condemn Jonah, I think the truth is you start looking at Jonah and I I find easily myself in Jonah, don't you? Wow, how much we want comfort, we want ease. And we're not, our plans are not God's plans, they're our plans. But I'm a Christian, I serve him. but we get about our own business. And then when things don't go our way, we're mad. Do you not realize that if the the people of Israel read this, do you know whose side they would naturally side with? I mean, they're looking at this going, yeah, Jonah's got got a point there. And if we're not careful, again, same thing, what are we doing? We're the same thing. I mean, and I look at this and I say, what should this make us do? I think this should humble us because I think about all the people around us and we're so, we're so going our own direction and not God's way so often, yet we call ourselves believers and followers of the Lord. I think as we read this book, it brings us to that point. And, and if Jonah is the, the writer, which I think he is, what is he doing? He's condemning himself, which tells you contrition. In the very end, God's right, and I'm wrong. How should we respond? I think three things. One would be ask God to forgive us. God, clearly you're right, and I'm wrong. If I'm upset with you, it's not on your side, it's on my side. Will you please forgive me? Number two, we should submit ourselves to God's will. His ways are not our ways. We submit to his will. God, what, are your, what is your will? I, I want to I surrender to it. I don't understand it, obviously. I, th- I thought it was this way. <laughs> but obviously, clearly, that's not what's going on. I'm, I'm submitting to you. I'm surrendering to you, and I want to find my joy and satisfaction in your ways and not my own. We should seek to learn the ways of God. This is Jonah reminding us that, again, God's ways and our ways are different, and we should learn God's ways and submit to his will and his way. And this world isn't our home. You know that, don't you? You, you don't take all this stuff with you when you die. 
So I'm so sorry your nice dream house is going to burn in the end if you read Revelation. Hello, you know, it's not going to make it, your nice car and all that stuff. You know, I'm so, you know, but reality check here. You know what I mean? So what are we living for? What are we living for? So this week, my prayer is that God would do a work in our hearts that we would submit to God's way and not our own. Let me pray and conclude here.